Turn with me this morning to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. You can place your Bible marker there. We're going to be there through the next uh, five Sundays after today as we go through 1 Corinthians 15. Now in Matthew chapter 18, verse 20, Jesus ends his instructions on restoring a brother. And he says there, he says, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, I'll be there among them. And we have taken this verse to apply to any context of when Christians are together, that if two or three are together, that he's with us. And that's absolutely true, even though the scripture is dealing with the restoring of a brother. But we know that even when one is gathered in his name, that one, that God is with that one, isn't he? But no matter if it's restoring a brother or if it's for prayer, what I'm saying is we know that God is with us, don't we? And while we know that the Lord is with us in the midst of his people, we also know that where two or three have gathered in his name, we also know that there's probably four or five opinions that exist among those two or three people, isn't it? Opinions about what, Brother Nick? Well, about anything, isn't it? You know, opinions are something that we all have. And it's usually something that we all have an abundance of as well. See, an opinion is just simply our view, our judgment on a matter. An opinion can be what one person thinks or believes, or it can be what a group or even a society thinks or believes. Many people will defend their opinion fiercely, and reject anyone else's viewpoint. You know, it used to be in society where we could have one opinion and another person have another opinion. We both strongly, uh, you know, uh, believe in those opinions. But we'd walk away and we could still be friends, you know, even though we have different opinions. And it seems like that those days are getting further and further away from us, isn't it? You see, now a fact, though, is something that's very different than an opinion. A fact is the truth. No matter what anyone else thinks about it, a fact will always be a fact. For example, we know that on earth, if we throw something up in the air, it's going to come back down, isn't it? It's going to come back down. Also, we know that we need oxygen to breathe. Go in a room or put a plastic bag around your head. You're not going to breathe for long, are you? Really, don't go do that. I'm just saying... You know, we're not going to breathe, are we? And these are facts, and they are important, and they are what we call absolute truth. Absolute truth is something that will never change no matter what you and I think about it. And the components of that absolute truth are absolutely essential. If you removed oxygen from the world, would you still be able to breathe? If you removed water from the world, would you still be able to live? If you removed your heart or your brain or both of them, would you still function normally? You see, it is an absolute truth that our body needs air and water in our brain and our heart to function correctly. What good would the quality of our life be if we removed these things? Likewise, what good would a soccer game be without a ball? 
What good would our car be if it didn't have any tires on it? What good would our home be if we didn't have a roof on top of it as well? And so in thinking about absolute truth and the components that are essential to an absolute truth, this morning we come to 1 Corinthians 15. And here in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul spends 58 verses discussing one subject. And that one subject is the fact of the resurrection. It is Jesus' resurrection, but it's not only discussing Jesus' resurrection, but it's discussing the resurrection of his believers. And so, like I said, over the next six Sundays, we're going to examine the importance of the resurrection. See, as Christians, we stand on the absolute truth of the Bible. In my heart, in my mind, the Holy Spirit has shown me that the Bible is the absolute truth. There is no error in it. There is no fallacy in it, no lie whatsoever. And we can't go from any place else until we accept the fact that God's word is absolute truth. But when we do, we have the firmest of foundations to stand on, don't we? See, in his word, we see Jesus' resurrection. And we'll see that the resurrection is not only important, but it's absolute truth. And it's an essential component of our faith. If you remove the resurrection, then our faith is worthless. There'll be no point of the gospel. There'll be no point in Christianity if you remove the resurrection. And so as we begin examining the importance of the resurrection this morning, I want us to look today at the truth of the resurrection so that we can all leave here, whether you came in this way or not, to know that the truth, that the resurrection is absolutely true. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, I I thank you that we can be here this morning to hear your word, dear God. And God, all I pray is that you show us the truth in your word. Lord, I think that most everyone here today would agree about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that it's true, that it's happened. We may wonder about this uh, idea about of our own resurrection as believers. And so, Lord, if I, I just pray that you search our hearts, Lord, and that we can stand on the truth of your word, dear God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I want to read verse 1 and 2 to you. And I want you to see here the, the response to the truth. Before Paul ever gets into the content and to what it is and how we should believe in the resurrection, he shows how the Corinthians have responded to the truth. So look at the response to the truth in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 1 and 2. Now I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preach to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold to the message I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. Now, before Paul states the gospel, before he ever explains the gospel or the resurrection, as I said, he reminds the Corinthians about how they have responded to the gospel. 
Understand that Paul came to the city of Corinth in Acts chapter 18. And he came here right after they had their ministry in Athens. So he comes to Corinth, Greece then. And this took place during his second missionary journey, which was around about 50 to 51 A.D. And as he came to Corinth, Paul began to preach in the synagogue. If you've been on Wednesday nights, we've been walking through the book of Acts. And where does Paul go every time he goes into a new city? He goes into the synagogue first and begins to preach. And so he does the same in Corinth. But eventually he stopped preaching in the synagogue, and this is a theme as well in all the cities he goes in, because the Jews begin to reject the message. And so in this case in Corinth, what did he do? He moved to a home right next to the synagogue, right next door uh, to the man, uh, to a home of a man named Titus Justice in Acts chapter 18, verse 7. Now, one man that, that heard the gospel message and was saved was a man by the name of Crispus. And Crispus was the leader of the synagogue in Corinth. And he was saved. He heard the message and believed. And after that, many Corinthians who heard the gospel believed. Paul even stayed for 18 months in the city of Corinth during this second missionary journey. So understand that when Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, it was, he was writing around 56 AD. This is five years later uh, he wrote the book of 1 Corinthians. And so I want you to hear this background to understand that Paul just didn't go into the city of Corinth one day, see people believe in Christ, and then leave the next day. This was a long relationship of him teaching and preaching the word of God among the Corinthians. And so Paul was there for 18 months, as I said, preaching the gospel and explaining it. But yet five years later, here in 1 Corinthians 15, he feels the need to make the gospel clear. He says, I want to make this clear for you. He wants to make this clear for who? His brothers and sisters. He wants to make it clear for the church in Corinth. See, Paul had already preached the gospel to them. The Corinthians, those that are brothers and sisters in the church, have already believed it. And they've already taken their stand on the gospel of Jesus Christ. But yet that is becoming a shaky foundation. Many are misunderstanding the gospel because they believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But like many of the Sadducees in Jesus' days, they don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. They don't believe that a believer will be resurrected. And Paul says that the gospel is one in verse 2. He says, by which you are being saved. What does that mean? You see, I look at the gospel like this. If you have ever given your life to Jesus Christ, Say it was 20 years ago. You were saved at that very moment, wasn't you? But as a believer, we continue to grow in Christ. And the Bible describes that as continuing to be saved. And when we are in heaven, we are saved as saved can be, aren't we? So salvation is a point in time where we are saved. But that transformation is a process until we are in glory together. And so they must, Paul is telling them that they must hang on to the gospel or they believe it for nothing. 
you may say, well, Brother Nick, people that's given, uh, that's believed in the gospel, or there's no way that they had turned from it. I believe that if you're saved, you're always saved, okay? But there are some people that will profess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, but they never believed it in their heart. And you'll see people, you'll, they'll walk an aisle, they'll join the church, and maybe two weeks, six months, a year later, they empty. You know, we have just about as many uh, inactive as we have active on our roll. And I wonder if that's the case a lot of times, that they've either just fallen out and fallen to the world, or maybe they never believed at all. I don't know. But Jesus in Matthew chapter 13 talks about this in the parable of the sower. Matthew 13, verse 18 through 23. <coughs> When he's talking about the seed thrown along the ground, this is what he says. So listen to the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word about the kingdom and doesn't understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is the one sown along the path. And the one on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word, immediately receives it with joy, but he has no root and is short-lived. When distress or persecution comes because of the word, immediately he falls away. But the one sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the worries of this age and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. But the one sown on the good ground, this is the one who hears and understands the word, who does produce fruit and yields some a hundred, some sixty, some thirty times that what was sown. And so the word falls on different people. Some reject it altogether. Some receive it, but then uh, turn away from it. Some let the worries and the wealth of the world choke it out. But some hear the word and believe. How have you responded to that? You see, the gospel demands a response. You know, born and raised here in the state of Mississippi, as many of us are, you have to make a choice in life, don't you? You either pick Oxford or you pick Starkville, don't you? You pick Ole Miss or you pick State, and you stand on that one a lot of times, and then there's been a few weird Southern fans, aren't there? No, I'm kidding. But, you know, you pick one or the other, and you stand on that. How much more as Christians do we do we give our life to Christ and we stand on that rock and we plant our flag and we are not moved in our response to the gospel. The gospel demands a response. And so that is the response to truth is where do you stand on it? Now, after talking about how the Corinthians responded to the truth that Paul preached for so long, he gives the content of the truth here in verse 3 and 4. The content of the truth. Look at verse 3 and 4. For I passed on to you as most important what I also received. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And we'll stop right there. Okay. Before you can make a decision to accept or reject the truth of the gospel... You need to know exactly what the gospel is, what the content of the gospel is. 
And so Paul states here in verse 3 that he passed on to the Corinthians the most important message that he had received. And that most important message is the gospel message that Jesus Christ gave to him. See, in two short verses here, Paul gives three clear facts about the gospel. First of all, he says in verse 3 that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. See, we know that humanity has had a sin problem ever since Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden. And because of our sins, uh, our sins have separated us and built a barrier between us and God. And so the sacrifices pointed to the one who would die for our sins. Isaiah chapter 53 Isaiah 53, verse 4 through 6 says, Yet he himself bore our sickness, and he carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him as stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we're healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We have all turned our own way. And the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. Christ died for our sins according to the scripture here in Isaiah 53, verse 4 through 6. It talks about the one that is to come that will die for the sins of all mankind. And that is Jesus Christ. The second fact of the gospel here in 1 Corinthians 15 is that Jesus was buried. Now, only some sick and twisted people bury people that are alive, aren't they? Most people bury people because they're what? They're dead, aren't they? And so the burial of Jesus Christ shows that he was dead at this time. There was no mistake in the fact that he was dead. And as we've been looking at through the different feasts in Leviticus and stuff like that, the Feast of Unleavened Bread points to the fact that Jesus uh, had died and that he was buried. Isaiah chapter 53 as well talks about the burial of Jesus Christ according to the scriptures. Isaiah 53 verse 8 and 9 says, He was taken away because of oppression and judgment. And who considered his fate? For he was cut off for the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, but he was but he was with a rich man at his death because he had done no violence. He had not spoken deceitfully. Here it talks about that Jesus would be buried in a rich man's grave. And we know that Joseph of Arimathea had a new grave that Jesus was buried in, wasn't he? And so we see the fact of the gospel here as well. The third fact of the gospel is that Jesus was to be raised on the third day according to scriptures, as you'll see in verse 4. Jesus was absolutely resurrected from the dead. And there are Old Testament prophecies about the resurrection, and I want to read for you some of those so that you'll know. First one comes from Job chapter 19. Job 19, verse 25 through 27. Job says, but I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the end he will stand on the dust. Even after my skin has been destroyed, yet I'll see God in my flesh. I'll see him myself. My eyes will look at him, and not as a stranger, my heart longs within me. 
Psalm chapter uh, 16, verse 10 says, For you will not abandon me to Sheol, you will not allow your faithful one to see decay. And even though Jesus was buried and even though he was put in the grave, his body did not see decay. Hosea chapter 6, Hosea 6 verse 2 says, He will revive us after two days, and on the third day, he will raise us up so that we will live in his presence. See, Jesus was raised on the third day. And also, this is an Old Testament story that Jesus enlightened us about in the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, he's talking about Jonah. And so in Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, he says this. He says, For as Jonah was in the belly of the huge fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. And then he'll rise. You see, when you look at these three parts of the gospel, you may think that they're equally important. And they all are important. But one is more important. And here in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul shares with us, particularly when we get to verse 13 and 14, that he argues that the resurrection is not only important, but it is the crucial element of our faith. That he was not just any dead man that lived a good life, but he was a man that God raised from the dead and he gives us hope that we need. See, we know that Jesus is the son of God because of the resurrection. We know that he is different and he is the son of God because of that. And this gives us the hope that we need and these three are the gospel, but the resurrection is the most important part of the gospel. Next, in verse 5 through 8, in looking at the truth, Paul goes on to show the evidence of the truth, okay? Look at verse 5 through 8. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one born at the wrong time, he also appeared to me. How do we know that Jesus Christ was really resurrected? You know, unfortunately, we don't have any video footage, do we? But what we do have is the testimony of witnesses. See, first of all, we see where God, I mean, excuse me, where Jesus appeared to Cephas who we know is Peter. And there in verse 5, Paul says that. And while the details of this count are not recorded, the fact is recorded in Luke 24, 34, that Jesus had appeared to Peter. And why did Jesus appear to Peter before he did the rest of the disciples? And most likely it was because Peter needed the special comfort from the Lord after he had just denied Jesus three times. Secondly, we see here in verse 5 as well that Jesus appeared to the 12. Now, the name 12 is a figurative name that describes Jesus' disciples. And we know that he appeared to them in Luke chapter 24. And we know that he was in bodily form in Luke 24 because he ate a broiled fish in front of them. Also in John chapter 20, he appears to the disciples. Then a week later, he appears to to Thomas, and he said, look here, Thomas, 
Look at the scars in my hand. Look at the, at the scar in my side as well. Put your hand there and feel them for yourself. You couldn't have done that with the spirit, could you? It was only with the body. And so we, we see that there. Thirdly, Paul states that the resurrected Jesus appeared to 500 brothers and sisters at one time in verse 6. And most likely, this is what took place in Matthew chapter 28. It says in Matthew 28 that Jesus appeared to the 12 and to other believers when he gave the great commission in Galilee. And so most of these brothers and sisters were still alive, but some had died. Fourthly, we see where Jesus appeared to James in verse 7. Now, this is not James, the son of Zebedee, that's the brother of John the Apostle. This is not James, the son of Alphaeus, who was another disciple. But this is James, who is the brother of Jesus Christ. See, Jesus' own brothers did not believe in him at first. John chapter 7, verse 3 through 5 states that fact, that they did not believe in him at first. But this James would eventually believe. He would become the leader of the Jerusalem church. He would be the writer of the book of James that we have in the Bible. And Jesus also continued to meet with his apostles, as we see here, over a 40-day period before he ascended into heaven. And the last witness that Paul gives here in verse 8 is himself. That Paul refers to himself as one born at a wrong time. See, after Jesus' ministry, uh, this meaning the wrong time. It wasn't during Jesus' ministry, but after it. In fact, Paul is eaten up with guilt a lot of times because he was a persecutor of the church. We know that he had letters of persecution. He, he was able to go on the authority of the government and able to go to Damascus. And on that road to Damascus, as he was going to persecute the church, the Lord blinded him and spoke to him, shared the gospel with him, and Paul was saved on the road to Damascus. See, Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15 says, that you should not accept the testimony of any one witness, but you need two or three witnesses. And here Paul gives way more than two or three witnesses, doesn't he? And so there's many eyewitnesses to verify the truth of the resurrection. And finally... I want you to see the transforming power of this truth. The transforming power of the truth. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 9 through 11. For I am the least of the apostles, not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, so we proclaim, and so you have believed. You see, Paul looked at himself in a very humble way. He didn't consider himself as the greatest of the apostles, but he considered himself as the least of them. It wasn't that Paul ever doubted the fact that Jesus had called him as an apostle, but it was the fact that Paul had persecuted the Lord's church. The fact that God would call him and commission him to this text, excuse me, probably amazed Paul. He was definitely 
humbled and he felt undeserving of the task of the apostle. But Paul was very aware of his own sins. However, he knew that his sins were forgiven through Jesus Christ. We also do not see where Paul was burdened with guilt because of the sins that he had committed. But at the same time, Paul had not forgotten all that he had done. See, even though he remembered his past, he embraced and he remembered God's grace even more where he could say in verse 10, I am what I am. See, it's God's grace that transformed Paul from the persecutor of the church to the missionary of the church. And he says that this grace was not in vain. God's grace was not wasted on Paul, but he took all that energy that he would use persecuting the church. He took it all and started working for the Lord. And by God's grace, he worked hard and he was a good steward of the life that God gave him. See, Paul had experienced that transforming power of the gospel for himself. And no matter if it was through the preaching or the apostles, he wanted the Corinthians and others to believe that they could be transformed by this truth of Jesus' resurrection as well. You know, that is the only way that people can be transformed is through the gospel, isn't it? Romans chapter 10, verse 14 through 17 says, how will people hear if they're not told? How are people going to be able to believe if they're not told. And it's up to us to go and share the gospel with them so that they can experience the same transformation that Paul and hopefully we have experienced. So I don't know about you, but I'm a person that likes to trust the word of others, but at the same time, verify what they're saying is true. Trust but verify. You've heard that, haven't you? For instance, if someone came up to me and said, do you know it was going to snow tomorrow? I'd say, no, I didn't know that. And I'd believe him, but I'm like, let me look at this weather report for myself, you know. And when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we can't go back and watch the footage. We don't have any friends that were there and saw it. So how can we know that it's true? Because we know that God's word is true. No error. No lie. It's 100% true. And if we take his word as true, then we know that there were many, many witnesses there that saw it, even though we haven't. And if that still doesn't do it for you, when the Holy Spirit within us convicts us that it is true, doesn't it? What do you believe about the resurrection? Do you believe that Jesus lived a sinless life, died on the cross for your sins? Do you believe that he was buried in a tomb only for God to raise him from the dead three days later? If you believe this, then have you ever given your life to Jesus Christ and been saved? If not, I want to encourage you to during our invitation to be saved today. Have you trans, been transformed by the power of the gospel? Or are you still holding on to sin in your life? If you're still holding on, Commit today to give that sin up and make him the Lord of your life. Commit today to stand on the truth of the resurrection as solid rock and never back down from that truth. Commit to pray and share the gospel as well with one other person so that they can be saved and know the same 
gospel that you do. Amen. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray to you today that as we have looked here at Paul's message in 1 Corinthians 15, Lord, we know that it is not Paul's message alone, but it is your message, your gospel, your truth. Lord, help us take our stand on that. That, Lord, no matter if the world says that the resurrection was not true, no matter if we're the only person that stands in this world and says, I believe in Jesus Christ and I stand on his word as 100% truth, Lord, let us do so. Let us know the truth of the resurrection. And, Lord, let us know the transforming power of the resurrection as well. And so, Lord, if there's someone here today that needs to give their life to Christ, let them do so and be transformed in their life. Lord, help us, Lord, to share that truth as well so that others can be saved. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, Lord. Amen. Let's stand.